Welcome to, well, let's call it a Model Rail Radio recording. I have the pleasure today of talking with John Gardina IV, who many of you know very well. You're somewhat a celebrity in the Model Rail community, at least in North America. What struck me in particular was that collectively our, you know, our history goes back to the late Ryan Anderson, who I had a lot of correspondence with. I was, I don't know, he, he portrayed me sometimes as a bit of a nemesis character, even though I was always trying to help him as much as possible. You also had a long-standing connection with Ryan Anderson. How, how, can you summarize that for the listeners? Uh, I, I barely remember how it started. I think I just got chatting with another lost friend, Craig Biskire, um, mm. uh, on Skype one day. Uh, and then um, I, I think they invited me on for two episodes. I think this was when Ryan was going through his uh, first bout with cancer. Mm. And I took over uh, quite ineptly for those two episodes in retrospect, uh, recording uh, the audio files and the interviews. Um, my one tiny claim to fame in this hobby is that I was there at... Uh, moment zero uh, for the hobby and 3D printing. Mm. Uh, it was me, I think somebody else, uh, Craig Biskeyer, and then, oh, goodness, I forget his name. He, he did a video model railroad podcast from Canada for a while, and, and Craig and, and this Canadian video uh, podcaster talked about 3D printing, and then I think I did another episode with him on logging railroads, uh, and then I did a very short uh, two-season spinoff of video podcasts called Model Railcast Video. Video. Mm. Uh, the first uh, season was on tips and tricks, and then the second was interviews at the uh, Extra 2011 West Convention in Sacramento. Uh, that, that's kind of the extent that I have. In retrospect, uh, it was very cringy, and I was very young, but mm-hmm. I was there for some very big moments in the hobby. I, I did not deserve to be there. It just, it just kind of happened. I remember that there was a long discussion about the video camera and getting you a video camera and how this was important. The, the backstory for me was that I knew a fellow whose name escapes me on this evening, as names tend to escape me in evenings, who was very much about how podcasting should become your business. You had to make money out of podcasting. It had to be a real business. It was all very serious stuff. And Ryan was uh, quite a, a strong zealot of this fellow's work. I can't think of his name. He was part of a podcasting, the same, oh, I can't even think of the name of the place now, that he, uh, where you hosted your podcasting files for money. And that was really the beginning of the end. Like I found free pod file hosting for my podcasts as quickly as possible. So I didn't even have to think about money anyway. So Ryan and I had distinctly different philosophies with regards to this thing. And it was difficult because I was always trying to see that the model Railcast continued on. I think Ryan, there were various points of time, irrespective of Ryan's health, where he felt quite down in the dumps associated with where this thing was leading him. And it wasn't leading him into a business. It was leading him into a, a hobby of all things. So I had an interesting relationship with Ryan, but I remember you back then just because you were this kid that needed to get the video camera and this was a really important thing. I remember thinking at the time, hmm, it's interesting to see an importance in getting a, I don't know, how how old were you? Were you in your teens then? Uh, Goodness, I I think I was. I was born in, what, 96? So that puts me at like 13 to 15, I think it was. It, It was when I was in Utah. So yeah, that has to be it. Interesting. Anyway, the idea that getting a teenager a video camera was a critical part of the the model railcast show at that time just struck me. I mean, I guess I had my own podcasting dreams and aspirations at the time too, which involved not necessarily getting equipment, but certainly not getting equipment to particularly curious teenagers who were somehow getting involved with the podcast in some fashion. But I remember that was well noted in my memory. So when I heard your name again, and it was pointed out to me repeatedly that I should know who you are, 
uh, it reminded me very quickly of that time with Ryan Anderson and uh, your celebrity status with the model railcast show. Yeah, this is incredibly trippy to me because from my perspective, that was half my lifetime ago. I Amen. barely remember any of it. Amen. And to know that I was already uh, a part of a celebrity attention at the time. <laughs> dear goodness. Yes. So let's talk about, let's take a few steps now. It's interesting because I listened to the Proto Future podcast on a walk and there was a lot of it that I thought was really right on. I'm not sure if we could get into much of the same language that you get into in the Proto Future podcast. Uh, a slight language warning for people that are <laughs> listening in. But it did strike me that there were a series of things that you said that really resonated very strongly with me. In particular, and this is funny because I, I now come from a part of the US that is the absolute antithesis of this. There's no public transport anywhere near where I'm living. There's not even Amtrak to Las Vegas. You may not know that. So... There's actually, uh, you know, Desert Wind was uh, discontinued in 97, right? Yeah, so there's no service to actually get. You need to get a Greyhound to LA to actually even get back on the Amtrak. So it's very strange coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada, talking about these ideas. But certainly the discussion that you had associated with the importance of public transport and just the relationship with the car and the relationship with roads and the relationship with all these things that are just so antithetical to me. I, I would be ideally suited in a European city. My life, unfortunately, hasn't taken... Well, it has historically for small periods of time. And the Bay Area wasn't too bad. I mean, certainly there was at least light and reasonable rail transport in most areas of the Bay Area. But um, can you talk a little bit about... I mean, I, I know you come to this thing with a manifesto, and it's interesting looking <laughs> at the manifesto as a way of how, how can we decompress the manifesto for listeners of Model Rail Radio specifically? Can you talk a little bit just about the idea of public transport that you raise in the podcast? Oh, goodness. Oh, there, there are so many uh, things that I can start talking on there. Well, I guess uh, to specifically address the point of uh, public transport, uh, the kind of crusade that I've been going on for the past two or so years, uh, ever since I, I've put together my first uh, PowerPoint presentation for NMRA conventions, uh, I, I think that there have been developments uh, specifically in rail transit in the past 40 years that not only are they ignored by the uh, mainstream hobby or, or just maybe not noticed but uh, the, my thesis is that they run immediately adjacent to things that people already model mm. like uh, at the extreme end uh, there are uh, diesel uh, light rail systems in Texas and New Jersey and electric light rail systems uh, in uh, Salt Lake where uh, the freight trains and the rail transit vehicles share the exact same rails mm. and I know a lot of people say that oh, passenger trains they're a thing of the past and, and they model the 19 1950s for stuff like that um but now it's come back it just looks different and it's only in some areas and so i think a lot of people have overlooked it um but for many of the same reasons of the past um uh, that you get to run both uh, freight trains and passenger trains at the same time and they get to vie for track space i, I think that this is a new and interesting way uh that you can um uh, uh, combine uh, uh, traditionally historic elements of railroading but in a modern context that that's kind of i guess the transit associated side of things and you can also gamify it a lot i mean certainly when we have dave Brazon, he talks about doing that with regards to his new york prototype and i think the the gamification of you know passenger and, and uh, as you say industry is interesting as well i think the the fundamentals of your podcast if i was to summarize it relate specifically to how your generation has a completely different perspective on a variety of things which is really the i ironically other than talking with you via email i had a long chat in person with gordy robinson which kind of brought these two ideas together because obviously a big part of his remit is 
is youthifying, youngifying the NMRA, um, which in and of itself is a very ambitious goal and requires a lot of really quite curious, which you don't even realise until you meet the man, uh, quite curious, um, you know, calisthenics to actually get this thing to work itself out correctly. But I was thinking about the the manifesto, so to speak, that your podcast presented and also Gordy's problem associated with getting more young people involved with the hobby. Do you have a, a blueprint for that? Uh, not really. The manifesto itself was more or less just me writing a bunch of various emotions and then all of a sudden things started to connect to each other and then on I went. It, it, it truly was uh, more a manifesto and, and less a, a structured document. But uh, a lot of what I, I do kind of point towards is that uh, of these things that have developed at least rail transit in the past 40 years, those are the things that I have grown up with, that people of my own generation get to look outside our windows and see, and if we're lucky enough, ride them too. Um, but they are like... We we don't have any models of them. I think there's one person on Shapeways who makes one rail transit vehicle, and even then it's a, a, a practically a scratch build. Um, but a, a lot of the regular model railroading space, it, it kind of uh, falls towards either uh, old-fashioned steam railroads or transition era, or uh, as I say in the episode, uh, bleak industrial alleyways uh, of uh, freight in, in the modern world. And there's, uh, uh, if you look to YouTube especially. There are a lot of young people that are particularly interested in these modern forms of passenger transportation, mm. and it's growing right now uh, mm. with recent infrastructure bills, but there's no way that we can partake in the enthusiasm side of things because none of the models, none of the railroads, none of the club layouts uh, reflect uh, this side of the world that we've come to appreciate. Do you think it's a, just a matter of shapeways, you know, of, of folks creating more stuff on shapeways, or do you think it requires a manufacturer definitely to take not. this seriously. You don't think Shapeways is the way forward? But I, I definitely think a manufacturer has to take this seriously because a lot of this is um, capturing people where they are. Uh, mm. If you want to, uh, if, 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 you have, if you have a small child and you want to give them a train to run around a Christmas tree, giving them a Shapeways kit and uh, a Bowser pantographs and an ESU decoder is not how you get a train running around the Christmas tree. Certainly. Whereas if you have models of rail transit vehicles and, and you can just buy them and run them model railroad wise, but you can also have uh, a simpler, cheaper versions of those in train sets, which capture people's attention. You can sell them at like uh, city gift shops, and you can ensnare the general public into the hobby of model railroading rather than needing to bank on them being train enthusiasts. Uh, train enthusiasts to begin with. It's interesting because the problem, as you describe it, is the problem that we encountered very heavily in Australia and other countries encounter still associated with just being a lack of manufactured rail that looks anything like the rail that is available or, or visible on a regular basis. It's interesting, the Australian experience, mm -hmm. because that was very much moving to cardstock, moving to a variety of different things. And as you say, it, it removes that um, perfect kind of North American vision of a, a railway under the Christmas tree, um, assembled, ready to go, uh, because it requires a certain degree of, as you say, I mean, they are completely different philosophies. And I think what you're describing maybe is something that's slightly more interesting from my perspective, because I have seen or I've experienced and appreciated the lengths Australian model railroaders will go to in order to get their particular prototypes running. But the, it's interesting that you don't, you don't see that this is necessarily something that the youth will need to pick up um, in order to get their stuff made. It requires 
uh, I don't know, evangelizing heavily to a manufacturer to get them to do it. Is that the process the podcast is aiming to go? Are you aiming for this degree of evangelism through the podcast? Uh, to an extent, I, I, I appreciate the word evangelism, as I, I am definitely passionate on this subject. I, I'm not trying to preclude anybody from scratch building their own particular prototypes. Uh, I'm uh, more trying to uh, point out that there is a very large uh, aspect of unmodeled railroad territory, mm-hmm. and that that particular territory is very close to and recognized by the general public. Whereas, like, if Walters puts out uh, another uh, 1950s streamliner every year, that that's a lot, uh, 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 that's something that a lot of people never had direct experience with. And even if they did, it's probably at a tourist uh, a railroad or a railroad museum, not something that they can just walk down the street and run. Uh, I, I think I actually tallied it up, and that modern transit systems are in 60 different cities in 20 seven states and provinces. So they are out there, uh, and, and it is very visible and recognizable to the general public. And so th- this is an area of uh, outreach, particularly for the hobby and model railroading, that we could be uh, uh, banking on uh, uh, so much more than we are right now. Hmm. Yeah, the motivation of the manufacturers is really the difficulty here. And I think there is certainly, mm-hmm. that in and of itself is a, a difficult uh, difficult bridge to cross for a better metaphor. Because certainly when I look at my mm-hmm. my collection of, you know, model rail radio related cars that I've received over the years that have been, you know, prototype centric that someone has detailed amazingly and passed on to me to just prove that they existed associated with the ability for me to go and show other people uh, in the hobby. It's interesting that I think this is already being done by a group of people that are looking to create prototypes out of um, stock cars as much as they can. But it's interesting that the what you're talking about is a mass movement towards the manufacture of these cars <laughs> as opposed to a kind of micro movement towards hobbyists making their own cars and sharing them around with their friends, which I think probably is the same model that 3D printing and various other things have developed in the hobby, that there are people that own these printers and they are tending to be the people that are doing you know, 15 to 20 different people's print jobs at any given time. I shout out to Ron Kleiss here specifically, who I know that fits into. Um, it, thankfully, he has a business around this as well, but uh, it amazes me the amount of uh, non-business-related printing he does with this uh, equipment. So it is an interesting view that uh, let's aim for the manufacturers here and let's not... Do you think that it might be worth cultivating an underground set of hobbyists that know or at least are starting to cultivate things like shapeways and stuff like that? Or do you really think the only way forward is the manufacturer? Um, I'd say both, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like I said, some people already do on Shapeways offer, and it's not just a body shell. The, the, the way that I describe it is a Shapeways uh, kit mm-hmm. uh, where the uh, the uh, 3D print job is massively overpriced for just the body shell, but then the person who made it also sends you like a, a bunch of uh, components uh, uh, from Bowser of, of like motors and trucks and pantographs as well. So you can basically uh, assemble it together. It's a little bit more complicated than, uh, say, an Athen Blue Box kit, but not overly much so. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it is possible now to get a few prototypes uh, of these uh, modern transit vehicles. Um, I know that Bachman did announce that they were going to make uh, the Siemens S70 light rail vehicle, but they announced that 
four years ago, mm. and uh, it was also supposed to be released with their Charger locomotives, which th that's also another uh, important aspect of modern transit, the, the intercity transit. So at least mm -hmm. we are getting uh, some of that as well. Mm. Um, but uh, compared to how many different types of vehicles and systems there are out there, it is still, unfortunately, a little bit lacking. Interesting. Interesting. So I guess my perspective on this, particularly talking with folks such as Gordy, is that they're really looking for folks such as yourself to be lightning rods for want of a better term with regards to that, which seems to be what you're doing with this podcast. So <laughs> I, I think you're making the right, oh, you're well, making I'm the right direction. Oh, I'm talented at being that. So. Very good. Very good. So in terms of the upcoming episodes, my aim is by both recording a model rail radio and then recording a specific model rail radio talking to you, I can uh, eke out at least one more episode out of the um, the Proto Future podcast. What, what what are your plans with regards to future episodes? Okay, so I have at least five, maybe six more uh, ideas at the moment. I, I think mm -hmm. I am going to uh, a transition fully to a, a monthly release schedule. I'm going mm -hmm. to be alternating between uh, Proto Future and my old project, a Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Mm -hmm. That's part of the impetus for Proto Future. I realized, oh, well, I'm kind of finishing all the beginner topics. W what do I do now? So uh, at least maybe for a while more, I'm going to be alternating them one month each uh, and then uh, the alternating month the other. Um, but as far as Proto Future goes, I have two more, I guess I'm calling them prologues, to kind of round out what it is that I'm trying to go for. Uh, then I had uh, one field recording, uh, which I think I can turn into maybe two or three episodes, and then at least I can give uh, kind of a more informal carry the computer and walk around the layout room and describe what it is that I'm doing. Uh, then from there, well, uh, th that's at least more than six months in the future. Probably I'll come up with a, a few more ideas, but, but I imagine that I'm going to split it pretty evenly between model railroading style topics and uh, real railroading style things, and, and then also uh, just general urbanism and walkability uh, and uh, uh, transit-oriented development adventures uh, in the uh, built environment. Hmm. I mean, one of the underlying topics which I raised with you via email is whether there's inherent conservatism in model railroaders. And I think this was an interesting, because a lot of the stuff that you're describing not necessarily is against conservatism in general, but a lot of the stuff that you're describing is still politically of a very you know specific patch in the political spectrum. And I think what interests me through what you were describing was something which is rarely talked about in the model railroading hobby, which is probably that we're alienating a wide group of people just by taking very distinct perspectives on certain things. Can you talk a little bit more about that philosophy and how you've come to embody that? <laughs> Uh, that, that, that's a big philosophy, and I, I could barely think to embody it uh, only in my tiny little lonesome self. But uh, I, I think a, a lot of it is kind of the broader, unified, popular choices that model railroading makes. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of what I see in the layout space is, is more or less uh, a, a favoring of small town America uh, and short lines uh, and whatnot. And, and that's all fine, especially for every individual modeler. I'm not trying to tell you, you, you shouldn't be modeling what you enjoy. That, that, that That's not what I'm here for. But I think that in aggregate, a lot of it does kind of shape out to be uh, partially model railroading trains are fun, also partially uh, let, let's return to a simpler era, a, a smaller town uh, in, in the Midwest before it was uh, economically struggling. And I think that that kind of backwards facing obsession with not just uh, the past, but a very specific period of time in the past from the 1950s to the 1980s or so, um, I, I think that that means that 
the the things that especially the younger generation nowadays like uh, specifically walkable urban environments and transit accessibility a lot of that is being forgotten mm. um, if you look for example over to uh, to European models. Uh, uh, especially of the more modern stuff, uh, it, it's a lot of trams and stations and, and really cute uh, walkable environments. But uh, nowadays it's becoming popular in the North American space to have literal strip malls. Um, and, and you really don't find much in the way of like uh, uh, older 1920s Italianate style downtowns as mm. much anymore. So it, it's kind of a little bit of... Um, it's the equivalent of can I buy the train that I see in front of me, but also can I run it on a layout that uh, I, I would want to live in if it were a world too. And, and I think that we could do a little bit to maybe broaden our perspectives a little bit more to come up, especially on the club layout space, because those are the outward facing ambassadors of the hobby. Mm -hmm. I think they could do a lot to um, uh, uh, be more broadly appealing and to have just a little bit more diversity in, in terms of the types of railroads and layouts that they uh, depict. Mm. I mean, certainly traveling by train across the U S or traveling by car across the U S you it is interesting, the towns, I mean, I'm thinking of, is it Lincoln, is it Lincoln, Nebraska? And some small towns I've been to in the US do still have the, as you say, the 1920s Italianate uh, downtowns. And I think they're still embraced to a certain extent, but whether or not they're, you know, whether or not they're universal or how extensive they are, I think is an interesting problem. But yeah, it is, it is interesting doing a compare and contrast between the European layouts and the American layouts and the various perspectives on the prototypes. I've certainly said this to uh, to Ron Kleiss and other manufacturers when I've had the chance. The, I don't know what you'd call them, the um, trailer park phenomena that you get in the US where trailers <laughs> are just ubiquitous and ubiquitous as a means of cheap housing in you know rail junctions and obviously communities that have been centralized through roads intersecting and rail traffic intersecting and you know the the creation of a town without the necessary the infrastructure of the town that might have been created in the 1930s and 1940s 1950s mm -hmm. um yeah that they are a lot of it, it a, a lot of what i've heard um is that the, the modern way of building things especially like uh, car oriented strip malls is that they kind of end up being like an anti-place mm. like there's so much space uh between the buildings and they're so inaccessible from each other especially by walking that it kind of just leads into a, a weird sort of um uh, uh there are buildings there but but very little character and charisma to it mm. Mm. it is strange i occasionally discover these in the outskirts of las vegas they will make uh i can't remember the terminology that used but these kind of 1920s italianized structures um to create this notion of community in very curious and strange locations which you just discover by virtue of you know falling upon them in your motor vehicle so to speak um but it is interesting that the mm -hmm. the nature of planning um within cities and ultimately these cultures I mean, certainly when I think about my experiences traveling around the East Coast, and when I think about my experiences traveling around the West Coast, very different architectures and very different styles. But as you say, mm -hmm. against the uh, against the pedestrian, the pedestrian is the last. I often found this, my first experience with the US was Los Angeles. And um, I'm not sure if you spent any <laughs> quality time in LA, 
but it is the antithesis of the police Grew up trail. There for six years. Very good. So you, you're you're familiar with LA traffic, um, another phenomena. Oh, so yeah, it always struck me as very strange that this was a very much, I guess, a, a post nuclear fearing society. The way the roads were oriented, or the way the highways mm-hmm. in particular were oriented, but also that it was very, it was stupidly difficult. Um, there was a movie called I'm not sure if you've seen the film Falling Down, where a gentleman decides to walk a distance through LA. He ends up walking to Venice, which is a, a coastal community in LA. And his experiences walking these areas is all terrain uh, and somewhat curious. And it strikes me that I guess I've always looked at things from a pedestrian perspective. It's one of the things that I've naively maintained through a majority of my life as an enjoyment of actually getting out and walking periodically, which alienates me from a majority of my American cohorts and family. Um, but it is something mm-hmm. that I find fascinating that you could still, I mean, certainly in the Bay Area, I got out and walked quite a bit. In Las Vegas, it's more desert walking, which is a different kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the nature that being a pedestrian now is almost a radical perspective, I think is something which your podcast embodied beautifully. And I thought, well, that was one of the many points where I said right on explicitly in the podcast when you made some gesture in that direction. Um, because I certainly feel very personally that Certainly not coming from this country. I, I am allowed certain liberties and eccentricities, which I try to cultivate as much as possible. And, you know, my general dislike of car culture is uh, one of those that I don't necessarily put out in podcast form on a regular basis. But it was something that I found very, very nice to hear, actually, in your podcast was this sense that there are others out there that feel similarly to me. And they're similarly frustrated by the lack of public transport in almost any given location in the U.S. So it was a theme that I thoroughly enjoyed through your podcast. I, I'm exceptionally glad that you uh, liked that. Um, uh, going back a little bit, you said that you um, uh, listened to the episode while on a walk. I can only imagine uh, that as you got deeper into the episode, your walking pace just sped up faster and faster as my talking got more intense. I was going uphill through that period, so I was mindful that I was walking uphill while you were getting more and more intense, and it was quite strange that the actual gradient maintained itself through your intensity and then kind of tapered off towards the end. So, in fact, the gradient was perfectly designed for your podcasting uh, persona. And that in and of itself was probably why I sent you an email within a day of actually listening to the podcast because it was so kind of drummed in. I think that the whole nature of recording podcasts for people at walk is something that I found... Model Rail Radio has never really been in that zone, but I have recorded other podcasts historically that people uh, tend to work out to and walk to. Um, and I am very mindful that, as you say, the pace of the podcast can motivate the uh, the movement of the podcast. <laughs> anyway, John, I'm I'm running out of possible topics here, um, listing the uh, possibilities that you presented in your podcast so far. Are there any topics that I'm not covering or any topics you'd like to raise? Well, I definitely like how you said that um, uh, uh, walking is now a radical perspective. Um, th- there was a moment, uh, so I- I'm part of uh, a-, a group of people that listen to uh, Lionel Strang's uh, A Modeler's Life podcast, <laughs> uh, and-, and I've gotten uh, several times uh, to hang out with them. And kind of uh, showing a little bit of the walking, non-walking mindset, uh, we were in uh, Rochelle this past summer, mm. uh, and we were all uh, uh, heading towards uh, dinner in downtown Rochelle after hanging out in the railroad park and I decided to myself that I could just 
walk from uh, the park uh, to downtown and, and everybody all of a sudden w- w- was was quite surprised that I, I was going to to walk and everybody kept offering me oh no we, we can offer you a ride the trip was at uh, 600 feet it's like I, I'm pretty certain I could have uh, <laughs> pitched a baseball to the restaurant Very good. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to, to spite them or point them out uh, because they were all kind and they, they, they were offering me um, uh, uh, the ability to uh, or, like transport but it kind of just shows that um, uh, there is a, a little bit of a, a, a differing mindset between uh, how people interact with the world and to a lot of people these days uh, especially a, a lot of older people that grew up in like the 70s and 80s during the, the massive outbuilding of, of highways uh, and interstates that um, uh, it, it, it's kind of it's not just um, a, a differing lifestyle. It's a differing way in which you look at the world. Certainly. And I think a lot of that actually reflects back at model railroading because what is building a model railroad if not building a tiny slice of a tiny world itself? Certainly. Certainly. Bringing walking to a bottomless life. I like that. Yeah, that, that's actually how I was uh, uh, talking with uh, Ron Kleist just a few weeks ago. I think that's what he, he brought up. He was on the um, uh, uh, the AML podcast, has a, a weekly uh, Wednesday night uh, Zoom mm-hmm. chat with everybody from uh, Great Britain to Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's a really fun way to get to interact with modelers. Sometimes it does get a touch spicy. Um, sometimes that may or may not be my own doing, but that that's another story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very good, very good. Yep, Model Rail Radio, never spicy. Always bland and easygoing, even though I'm a big fan of spice myself, but uh, I have to live vicariously <laughs> through your podcast for that kind of stuff, I guess. <laughs> well, then maybe I have to invite you on sometime for an interview. But yeah, maybe. We, we, yeah, we, we could see if we could make it completely. Un- I, 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 I once did a podcast with a fellow. This is probably a decade ago now, where I'm also interested in wargaming and miniature gaming and all that kind of fantasy related stuff as well. I think maybe you do live action role playing or something like that, or uh, you, I get a sense that you might have some of that in your past as well. But anyway, I did a podcast called CWF Gamecast for uh, maybe three seasons um, with a gentleman. And then he decided he was going to introduce cussing into his podcast. This is a very straight laced role playing podcast. And he decided that he was going to start charging people money and introduce cussing into his podcast. Very, very bizarre thing. <laughs> very, very bizarre thing. Anyway, John, I think we've reached the, uh, the the limits of this discussion so far, but I would recommend people check out your podcast. How's the easiest way to find the Proto Future podcast? Uh, currently, you can check out my old website is kind of doing double duty uh, for mm-hmm. both podcasts. Uh, BGTMRRING.org. That's the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. It's a bit of a clunky acronym, Begitmering. But yeah, I'll, I'll fix it in post. Very good. Very good. Well, John, it's been a pleasure. I knew this was just a, a lightning fast opportunity for you to plug your own podcast as well, but it's been really great having the opportunity to chat with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been an absolutely amazing experience. I'm living out my dreams just talking to you right now. <laughs> well, I probably should be living my dreams talking to you since you're also part of the long legacy of Model Rail podcasting. Um, it's funny just bringing two people that are part of that legacy together and seeing how long back they can uh, they can reminisce. But yeah, Ryan and I were in full correspondence through um, his time creating the Model Railcast show, and I was trying at all possibilities to make sure that his enjoyment of podcasting was ongoing and pleasurable. And that's probably the best I could say. John, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you this evening. Um, please call into Model Rail Radio sometime. My hope is that they will return with some degree of frequency sometime in the foreseeable future and uh, it'd be great to catch up on a regular show. I'll have to do that sometime. Thank you very much, Tom. 
I'll talk to you soon. Take care.